Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here at the Festival of Bharat. I have been given the somewhat unenviable role of summarizing seven, maybe even more thousands of years of Indian history uh, into uh, less than half an hour, maybe in 25 minutes. Now, there is a real danger in going and attempting something like this, but uh, I'm going to go for it anyway, so let's see how it goes. Now, the excite, excitement about India these days, not just not just within India and Indians, but worldwide, is very much related to the fact that India, after hundreds of years, <clears throat> um, is going through somewhat of a renaissance. In fact, this was the topic of my very first book published about a decade ago. And by most accounts, we are about the fifth largest economy in the world. Most people expect that a decade from now, we will be the world's third largest economy. We are also the world's fastest growing major economy. So clearly, as an economy, it seems like we are back. We are also going through major social and and, uh, uh, political changes, uh, huge changes in the way we live. And one of those major changes is urbanization. We are about 40% urban today, somewhere thereabouts. But within a generation, we will be an urban majority country. But what is interesting when you think back and look back at Indian history is that we have been through all this many times before. We have been through these cycles over and over again. And this is important to understand Because it is embedded in the way Indians, and more specifically Hindus, think about time. When you look at other societies, whether Western societies, and more specifically Christian conception of time, and many of the other derivatives from that, for example, the Marxist conception of time, Time basically moves in one direction. It's a linear movement. So, for example, in the Christian conception of time, you have God creates the world, creates Adam and Eve, and from there, history moves forward linearly till the end of time where the kingdom of God is re-established. So, it's a linear time frame. Same thing happens, say, with Marxist time. A deterministic process of uh, historical materialism drives history forward. And in the end of that process, you have a communist state, and then finally, state withers away. Again, it's a linear conception of time. But the Indian conception of time is cyclical. Now, why is it cyclical? One simple explanation for that, obviously, is our climate. We live in a place where every year we see the cycle of the monsoon. So we have a fairly pleasant winter, followed by a very hot summer. And then life really seems to get sucked out. The trees all uh, lose their leaves, uh, the grass dries up, and the sun beats down. And then all of a sudden, the monsoons arrive, 
and it all comes back alive again. So this is one perhaps simple reason why we think of time in cyclical terms. But there is a deeper reason and that is that Indian history has gone through many cycles over long periods of time. And I'm going to give you some flavor of how this has happened. It has happened in terms of the way our economies, our kingdoms, but also deep cycles of urbanization. We have urbanized and de-urbanized many times in our history. The very, very first round of this happened in the early Bronze Age. Now, conventional histories tell you about the great um, cities of Mohenjo-daro and Harappa and so on. But in fact, this was a much more generalized affair as we are finding out. That across northern India, there were large numbers of... um, initially small cities and then larger cities and settlements that began to come up, come up around about the 5000 to 6000 BC, some even earlier, at 7000 BC. And they pop up everywhere. You see in Balochistan, you see them along the Indus, and very importantly, you see large numbers of settlements pop up along what is now the dry riverbed of the Ghaggar, which was called in our ancient text the Saraswati River. Now, this is getting more and more well-known. Many of the people will have heard of the Indus Valley civilization. But people don't realize that the Indus Valley wasn't even the first iteration. Along the Saraswati River, we are in fact now beginning to find sites which predate the Harappan period. So, they are really old sites going back to uh, 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 7,000 years back uh, and even older. And there are similarly sites even in the Gangetic Plains. Till very recently we were under the impression that (coughs) the cities of the Gangetic Plains came up in the Iron Age. But in fact what we are finding out that in the area between Allahabad and Varanasi, many, many ancient sites existed. Some of them could certainly, there were large uh, 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 um, settlements and one could argue some of them were even urban. So there were numerous sites that were popping up in very early Bronze Age across India. And it is not, let me be clear, about some sort of a pure civilization. From the very beginning, India was in the center of large numbers of migrations going in different ways. Some coming in, some going out. And so some of the very latest genetic data suggests that from the very beginning, these people who lived in this northwest of India in what we now call the Harappan civilization, were mixing, trading, exchanging ideas with the rest of the world, particularly with the Middle East. In fact, both genetic and uh, archaeological as well as cultural uh, uh, remains suggest that there was something called what I I call the Indo-Iranian continuum. The reason for that was very simple. Baluchistan at that period was not the dry desert we see today. It was a grassland and people walked back and forth all the time. So there was a cultural and genetic continuity from India all the way through to eastern Iran. But by the mature period, which is around the 3rd millennium BC, 
you also see enormous amounts of trade going back and forth between India and the Middle East. So you begin to see Indian settlements pop up in the Sumeria. Um, many Sumerian texts mention that there were a, com- <coughs> a a uh, community called the Meluhans, foreigners called Meluhans, who came from to trade from the east and brought with them, uh, and they list these products, which are clearly Indian products, including peacocks, as it happens to be. And you also see Harappan products pop up in Oman, in <clears throat> what is now Qatar, Bahrain, and so on. So you see lots of signs of Indian presence in the Middle East. And then all of it, suddenly comes to an end. Around about 2000 BC, major changes happen in our climate. Incidentally, this doesn't only happen in India. There are records of major droughts and climate change happening in Egypt, Sumeria, with devastating impact. This also happens to us. And the Saraswati River, which, by the way, was already in trouble, completely dries up. And the cities that were based in northwest of India, completely fall apart. The people that live there migrate out. Those who remain there essentially become much more rural. They change their crop patterns from growing wheat, rice and barley to growing millets and so on. And so the very big, first big um, sort of shift that we know of happens. A collapse in the economy, massive migration. But there is also continuity. And this is interesting to remember. It is not that these people are completely replaced. There are many of the sites that appear later on show clear continuity with the Harappan forefathers. So you have later sites, what is called the late Harappan, popping up uh, closer to the Himalayas in the north. The people of the Harappans of Gujarat clearly move on to the Narmada Valley. Many of them move inwards to the Gangetic Plains. And of course, they must have been, and there is some evidence of them leaving India and going westward. But this, now, a few centuries later, is replaced by in another round of urbanization, another round of growth. And you see that happening in the Gangetic Plains. And I want to emphasize here that many of these new sites in the Gangetic Plains were not entirely new sites. In fact, IIT, Kanpur, and many other, and now increasingly many archaeologists are finding that there were already significant urban settlements in the Gangetic Plains. And these sites now begin to grow very, very fast, but with a new technology. So what is this new technology? Iron. And where did iron come from? And this is very interesting. You see, southern India had not participated at all in the Bronze Age boom. It had by and large remained a hunter-gatherer society. But we now know that in and around what is now Hyderabad and the Godavari Basin, for the very first time anywhere in the world, systematic use of iron begins to pop up. And this technology appears around about the same time as the northern cities in the northwest are falling apart, around about 2000 BC. And this technology by around about 1500 becomes quite commonplace in the Gangetic Plains. And so using this new technology, there is another new round of growth. What is interesting is that 
unlike the ancient Harappan cities where there's, you know, it's not very clear which city was what, we actually have a very good idea about this time because many of these places are named and mentioned in our epics. Now, this is not to say that, you know, the events mentioned in our epics are necessarily true. I have no way of collaborating whether the, you know, war in Kurukshetra actually happened. But many of the places mentioned in the, in, in the, in the texts are real places. And archaeological digs in many of the, uh, of those places have now clearly shown uh, Bronze Age settlements, uh, sorry, Iron Age settlements. This includes, incidentally, Delhi, which was known to have been the site of Indraprastha, which was the capital of the Pandavas. And in Puranakila, many digs have been done showing a very old settlement, uh, although they are not quite as old as the early uh, Iron Age. They are, I think, as far as I know, go only back to 5th, 6th century BC. But it is quite uh, possible that further archaeology, and there is some evidence of that, may suggest that this was even older site. But you see that popping up near Meerut. There's a site where Hastinapur is supposed to have been, and so on and so forth. So there's clearly a boom in urban um, India uh, in uh, the Iron Age. And this results in a network of um, city-states, some of them republics, popping up all across. And at some point in time, um, larger empires begin to appear, the largest of which uh, seems to have happened in Magadh. And then it culminates, of course, in the great Mauryan Empire, which uh, covered... Uh, more than just uh, you know uh, the Indian subcontinent, it in fact extended into Afghanistan and in fact far out into eastern Iran. Um, so, so it cul- this sort of phase of growth um, takes place, and then this empire too disintegrates, and it disintegrates in the face of large numbers of invasions coming from the northwest, uh, whether they come. In terms of, um, you know, Indo-Greeks and Parthians and Bactrians and so on. But this collapse of this empire does not, it appears, lead to a collapse of the kind that um, you would have associated with, say, the collapse of the Harappans. So, although there is a large amount of churn, um, you see empires like the Satvahanas in the south, uh, you see empires in the north of the uh, the, uh, Shungas and so on, uh, which fight back against these invasions and there is continues to be a boom in trade across the Indian Ocean. In fact, this is a period where Indians really take to the sea. So although in you know even in Bronze Age Indians were sailing to the Middle East, now you see a boom in 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 trade, which is in a totally different order altogether. And so they are Indian merchants sailing off to Southeast Asia, sailing to Vietnam, even further on to China and Korea. In fact, Korean history, many people do not realize, actually starts with the marriage of a local prince to a princess from Ayodhya in India. So. There is this huge boom. Similarly, on the west coast of India, there is trade with the Greeks and then with the Romans. And then there is this explosion of trade across India as well. So there were these two major trade routes in India. One called the Uttarapath 
and the other called the Dakshina Path. The Uttara Path went from what is now Afghanistan across India all the way across through to Bengal, uh, through the Gangetic Plains. And the Dakshina Path started somewhere in and around the Allahabad, uh, Varanasi area and made its way down first through central India where uh, one branch went off to, uh, uh, towards um, Gujarat. But And the, the main route then went down south all the way towards Kishkinda and down to the southern tip of India. So there were these two major the paths. And much of the history, if you read, of this period is about these two highways. And where did these two highways meet? They met, interestingly, just outside Varanasi in a place called Sarnath. This is the reason, by the way, that Buddha, when he wanted to spread his message, went to this place to give his first sermon. What better place to go to give your first sermon than the place where the two most important roads meet? And indeed, the Buddhists were not the only people who went there to spread their ideas. We know that the early Tirthankaras went there. We know that this was also a sacred, very important and sacred site for Shaivism. In fact, the name Sarang, Sarnath is derived from Saranganath, which means the Lord of the Deer, which is another name for Shiva. And in fact, even today there is a Saranganath temple in Varanasi, um, where an annual festival is held. So this was really the center of, you know, thinking, idea, trade, and all of this was happening all at the same place. What is interesting, since I do talk about these cycles, but I also talk about continuity, is that the logic of this trading system in India is still alive today. So, the Uttarapath later became the Grand Trunk Road and today survives as National Highway 2, which is the single most important highway in northern India. The Dakshinapath survives today as National Highway 7, which starts at Varanasi and goes all the way down to the southern tip of India. And guess where these two highways meet? They meet even today at Sarnath. Not only that, when the British built the railway system, guess where they created the central node of this? In a place called Mughal Sarai. Where is Mughal Sarai? It is right outside of Sarnath. So the underlying logic of transportation, trade, exchange of ideas, even today, is the same. So it's not that surprising, therefore, when Prime Minister Modi decided to uh, fight for election outside his home state, he chose Varanasi to be the place because it is, in many, many ways, the central heart of India and has been so from the very beginning. Now, this period of growth culminated at some great empires somewhere in the north, like the empires of the Guptas, the Gujarat Pratiharas, but there were some great empires also in the south, like the Chalukyas, the Pallavas, the Cholas. And this was therefore a period of great cultural outpouring, but also of trade with the rest of the world. Scholars came from around the world to study in India, but very often Indians forget that Indians also traveled abroad to trade, to spread their ideas, 
to get new ideas back. So Indian civilization is very much a result of constant exchange with the rest of the world. It's a bad idea to think of the glorious past of India in some sort of a autarkic way. India was a great civilization precisely because it engaged with the rest of the world over long periods of time, through good times and bad. Now, this period in some senses culminated in the 11th, 12th, 11th and early uh, 12th century. India was at that time one-third of the world economy. You hit it right. It was one-third of the world economy. And the node, uh, sort of the, 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 the highway on which this world economy functioned was a trading route which started in the eastern Mediterranean <clears throat> with the Fatimids empire of Egypt and made its way to southern India, which was then ruled by the Cholas, and then made its way through Southeast Asia to um, uh, uh, China, which was then ruled by the Song dynasty. And there was a large amount of trade going back and forth along these highways. Unfortunately, in the very beginning of the 13th century, all these three civilizations faced a major shock with invaders coming in from northern, uh, from uh, Central Asia. Now, it's not very clear why they suddenly, these hordes of Central Asian invaders turned up. Remember, all these empires were very used to dealing with Central Asian um, um, ar armies for hundreds of years and had dealt with them quite successfully. So it's not very clear what exactly caused these um, all these three civilizations to suddenly collapse in the face of this pressure. But the very first round of it happened in Iran and in India where the Turkic um, armies suddenly appeared uh, rushed through northern India and then finally into southern India, destroying pretty much everything along the way. But if the F Turks were feeling very, very smug, they were not so, uh, 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 not so long later uh, replaced themselves by uh, <coughs> an equally vicious groups of um, uh, armies uh, coming in from uh, Mongolia which, of course, devastated all the Turkic cities in Central Asia and then made its way um, all the way into the Middle East with, of course, the horrific sacking of Baghdad. But on the other side, also the extremely brutal conquest, uh, Mongol conquest of China. And here in India, of course, successive waves, um, starting with the slave dynasty, followed by <clears throat> the uh, Kilgis and then with the Tughlaqs, uh, essentially uh, these great cities that had developed in the previous period of urbanization and expansion, um, they were sacked, the temples were uh, looted, uh, literally uh, hundreds of thousands if not millions of people were massacred. And if you want to read a uh, history of that period, a good source is Farishta. Um, and, uh, you know, you will see the extraordinary brutality of that uh, period. Now, this shock was, of course, a shock for all three civilizations, but it was a particular shock for India. 
because much of india's wealth was based not on individual traders going out and heroically trading in the rest of the world it was actually a highly organized system which included corporatized guilds which produced um you know of artisans who produced um the products like you know cotton cloth or um um metal metallurgical products and so on um then there were corporatized guilds multinational corporatized guilds which were trading so i e merchant guilds like multinational companies which took this and all of this was funded by these very rich temples people are very often under the impression that temples were rich because <clears throat> the kings handed them over uh, handed over their uh, wealth to the temples now as everybody knows um it's it's very difficult to get any politician to hand over large amounts of money so that was always the case even at that time so while emper- emperors and kings built large temples in the hope that they would be remembered they were certainly not handing over uh, the fiscal reins of their uh, uh, of their empires to temples the reason the temples were rich was that they acted as banks and much of this trade this venture capital and so on that happened was funded by these temples so these temples were very important as banks and that's why they had such a lot of gold now the turkic invasion essentially destroyed this financial system completely and as a result um this in this economic system on which this whole system was based fundamentally and totally collapsed and this had devastating impact so much so that even though after the uh, f- you know this initial shock of um, uh, uh, turkic and mongol invasions had been over uh, and you see the chinese and then later on um, even in the middle east the arabs and the iranians sort of build their civilizations back india really reeled from this situation for a lot lot longer because um um their economic uh, sort of networks had been so badly damaged and in fact they seem to have been there seems to have been a major loss of civilizational confidence to an extent that in fact many communities imposed on themselves caste rules that crossing the seas was somehow a bad thing um and that in many ways worsened and prolonged this decline because it meant that you sort of sort of restricted yourself as a people um <clears throat> now n- despite this shock by about the f- the 141500s you begin to see some sort of a comeback this happens in the south with the vijayanagar empire and in fact the city of vijayanagar after which it is named would grow by the fif- by around about 1500 to be the world's largest city in the north you have the mughal empire happening in the 16th century and although the mughals themselves were invaders they do at uh, over a period of time impose some sort of a peace in northern india and establish some sort of a trading uh, systems and also um, um develop a far more tolerant culture than had been the case under say the khiljis and the tughlaqs and so a, also uh, allowing for a cultural renaissance under them so both in the north under the mughals and in the south um yeah, under the in the vijayanagar empire you go through yet again another round of expansion and revival so new cities are built in the north 
um, and in the south and uh, many many um, cultural innovations happen um, and so on and yet again there is growth sadly this whole thing falls apart in the 18th century um, it happens for a variety of reasons um, one of them of course <clears throat> is um, the coming of European uh, colonial powers and they they don't turn up in one shot they, this happens in waves, starting with the Portuguese. Um, very often people forget that uh, the Portuguese were effectively the Mongols of the seas. They were vicious um, and had devastating impacts on um, uh, trading networks that had just about sort of revived in the, uh, after the uh, um, uh, Turco-Mongol uh, shock. And you begin to see uh, the European colonization, certainly by the 18th century, begin to eat up into much of India. There is a sort of a short period of almost a heroic attempt by the Marathas to try and stem this. So, um, the Maratha Empire, for a brief few decades, does manage to establish some sort of a control over uh, a large swath of uh, India. But unfortunately, partly because of pressure from the Europeans and part and, and a lot because of internal bickering, um, this uh, attempt by the Marathas to re-establish uh, order in India breaks down. Uh, and net result is that again you have a round of um, devastation and chaos. And the late 18th century and early uh, 19th century uh, economic uh, breakdown had a lot to do with the fact that Europe at that time began to go through the Industrial Revolution. And as a result of that Industrial Revolution, you began to begin to see, uh, you began to see the production of a lot of new products that India historically used to produce through an artisan uh, uh, mechanism, uh, artisan communities of various kinds. Indeed, till the 18th century, India had been the world's largest producer of textiles and exporter of textiles. And contrary to what many people think, um, you know, India's uh, exports of spices was actually not so important. It was of textiles that was much more important. And the early 19th century expansion of industrialized cloth production in um, in England, starting in England, but then spreading to other parts of the Atlantic, uh, that had a devastating impact on the Indian economy. So, you have here a complete breakdown of the Indian economy. You again see another round of, de uh, through the 18th and early 19th century, um, deindustrialization and um, uh, devastation. Um, and this devastation happens in multiple ways. Uh, former artisans who were highly prized are then forced to go back to the land. They are forced to go back to growing opium, for example, which the East India Company then bought from them at ridiculously uh, low prices and then, of course, sold it on to the Chinese. But even out of this devastation, yet again, a new round of growth begins. Um, the... the, the uh, Colonial powers begin to build their own cities in Calcutta, in Chennai, um, in Mumbai. Of course, they were then called by different names, Madras, uh, Bombay and Calcutta. And finally, culminating, of course, in the building of New Delhi. 
And then, of course, in, after independence, we have seen this process accelerate. And as I speak, India is going through yet another economic boom. We are yet again urbanizing and yet again the cycle starts. So before I end, I just wanted to, to summarize this whole thing that this story of civilization ups and downs is at the heart of why Indians have think about time in cyclical terms. If you do not understand this history, you will not understand why we have this uh, view of the world. Because it is very much a part of how we, uh, uh, of what we experienced uh, through our very, very long history. And yet, through all of this, there has been continuity. Continuity in many, many multiple ways. The Bronze Age um, texts like the Vedas are still used um, in daily use. Um, millions of Hindus get up every morning and chant the Gayatri Mantra, which was composed um, you know, four, five, six thousand years ago. Who knows? Um, you have Iron Age epics that are used, not just you know TV serials, but in everyday parlance. Um, you have um, you know great um, uh, 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 impact of uh, all this trade that we did during um, with Romans and Southeast Asia, not just in India but also in the rest of the world. You can travel through Southeast Asia. You will see the impact of ancient India at every nook and corner. Practically, in fact, people don't realize this. The largest Hindu temple in the world is not in India, but in Cambodia. There is, of course, the impact of the Turco-Mongol period. The language uh, languages of India uh, may have very ancient roots, but everyday language, whether it's Hindi or Bengali, is full of words brought in from Turkish, from Mongol, from Arabic, and Persian. Our food would not be uh, recognizable today without the um, contributions, for example, of the Portuguese who brought um, uh, crops and plants like tomatoes and potatoes and chilies without which in modern Indian food would be unrecognizable. Without the British, we wouldn't have the language in which I am speaking to you or cricket, which is a near religion in India. So, this is a long history with a lot of things pulled, picked up and pulled along along the way. It's a very ancient civilization but not an ancient civilization that has survived by being unchanging, by, by gathering along the way and absorbing influences from all over the world. And through it all, Indian civilization has survived. And so let me end by saying that we are again at the, throw, at the, at the beginning of yet another period of expansion. May this period of expansion last long. Thank you.